Hello? Okay. When do you... Where do you want me to go? Okay, you want me to go back and reread it? That's where it failed? Okay. So I said, uh, apparently I have to repeat some stuff, which I do every week anyway. So it's not that big of a deal. Um, we're going to go back and read verse 17 of uh, Isaiah 24:17, and hopefully this will all work out. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth, and it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear, notice how I'm saying that uh, specifically, shall fall into the pit, and he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the windows from on high are open. That is a Genesis reference. Uh, that's Noatic. Days of Noah, right? And the foundations of the earth are shaken. The earth is violently broken. That is something that will happen in the day of the Lord. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. I've built a few huts. I've seen the wind hit them when there's no shear on the tut, on the hut at all. It just collapses. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones and on the earth the kings of the earth did you notice the differentiation there there's a difference between the exalted ones the host of the exalted ones and the kings of the earth they will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison after many days they will be punished I hope you found the questions there then the sun will be, I'm sorry, then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. Okay. Isaiah 24, 1. Uh, listen, um, I should have read all of Isaiah, frankly. So I'll just pick a few out of here. Isaiah 24. One, behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and waste. Obviously, when you see the Lord makes the earth empty and waste, what do you think of? Where do you go? I hope you immediately saw the comparison with Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. Isaiah 24-1, Genesis 1-2. Isaiah 24-6, therefore the curse has devoured the earth and few men are left. The inhabitants of earth are burned. That happens in the day of the Lord. When is the day of the Lord? Obvious question, right? There are verses that lead. These are verses that lead to Isaiah 24, 18 through 23, which I just read. And obviously, the question is obvious. We need to know when this is going to happen. How, when, why, all of those things. When does the earth split open? When does it totter like a hut? When, when does the earth uh, exceedingly shake and reel to and fro and stagger? Well, it comes to pass in that day. The day the Lord punishes the exalted ones. And who are the exalted ones? Do you have a position? I can't wear my glasses and read the Bible or see anymore. It's just the way it is.
Who are the exalted ones? The hosts. The host of exalted ones. It's going to come in that day that he punishes those, those exalted ones. And he also punishes on the earth the kings of the earth. So I have this again. The exalted ones clearly aren't on the earth. Are not connected to the earth. The kings are. And all of them were going to be gathered and put into a pit. Into the prison. And then into the in prison. In other words, let me read it again. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in, in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. So if they fell into the pit, they're going to be gathered with the pit or gathered and then put in the prison. After many days, they will be punished. What's that tell you? Notice that he who fled or flees from the noise of the fear. What's the noise of the fear? How loud is it? Who's making the noise? Or what's making the noise? Notice that he who flees from that noise of the fear will fall into the pit and the fear and the pit and the snare. They're in a nice order there, 24-17. Isaiah. Are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. Flee from the fear and you fall into the pit, come out of the pit and be caught in the snare. And I would like to point out, yea, point out, that uh, Luke 17, 32 through 33, uh, Lot's wife didn't run from the noise. She ran to the noise. She ran towards the destruction. And he says, as he says many times, whoever loses uh, her life will preserve it. Notice how I put the pronoun her. Obviously, that statement from Christ has incredible meanings in Luke 17, 32 and 33. But I, uh, I don't want to get sidetracked in, into that digression, even though it's not really a digression. On that day, the host of exalted ones, I will give an answer. Yea, an answer. These are the fallen angels of Satan. It's obvious they are because they're going to be punished. And they're going to be gathered up. And they're going to be gathered up with who? And the kings of the earth are gathered with the exalted ones and shut up in the prison. Who else is in the prison? I have angelic and human side by side locked up. How many of each? Revelation 19, 20 through 21 attaches to Isaiah 24, 21 through 22. They will be gathered together. And in that day that comes to pass, the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones. I'm saying Revelation 19, 20 through 21 gives you this connectivity to Isaiah 24. And that the Antichrist and the false prophet are the first two to be sent cast into the lake of fire. Where they are alone. Revelation 20.10. So we know a few things. We know that the exalted angels are going to be gathered up. We know the kings of the earth are going to be gathered up. They're going to be taken out of the pit, out of the snare, and put into the prison. And then many days will come and they'll be punished. We also know, again, Revelation 19, that the Antichrist and the false prophet, uh, Revelation 20.10, they're in the lake of fire and they're alone. Why? Are they alone in the lake of fire? Why does Christ do this? What's his point of putting them in there first 
They're the first ones, the first residences, residents, if you will, of the lake of fire. Why them? Revelation 20, 1 through 3, describes Satan being bound and thrown into the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. So what's the obvious question there? Is the 1,000 years, is that the many days? After the many days, they will be punished. That would be the exalted ones, the exalted host, and the kings of the earth. That are all together in a prison somewhere. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Why isn't he with the exalted ones and the kings of the earth? Why isn't he in the lake of fire? Where is he? And Satan is bound and thrown into the bottomless pit, the abyss, for, uh, again, a thousand years. He's shut up and sealed so that he's unable to deceive. That's what it says. He can't deceive. And who can he not deceive? Is he alone? If he is alone, then now you have an explanation. He can deceive no one. But after a thousand years, the Bible says, Satan must be released. So after that, he must be released. It doesn't say he will be released. It says he has to be released, must be released. Why? It says for a little while. How long is a little while? I've explained this in the past. It, it proves something. He is imprisoned by himself where he can deceive no one. What does that prove? That if there's any deception, it's not assigned to him. So where did the deception come from? Who's getting deceived? Who's deceiving them? So anyway, that's, that's something I have done. Uh, oh, I forgot to put, I forgot to put, I got the pin out and everything. I forgot to put my by the way. Yeah. The thousand years is likely the many days of Isaiah 24, 22. After many days, they will be punished. The little while, it says in uh, Revelation 20. The little while. After a little while, he, he must be released. So putting it all together, we see that the kings of the earth who flee from the noise of the fear but are killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, Revelation 19.11, Revelation 19.18-21, Isaiah 24.21-22, I put all of those together, and the fallen angels of Satan and Satan are all gathered up. And shut up in some locations. Is it the same location? Or is Satan alone? Then after many days, they will be punished. Why is he waiting to punish them? Can't he do two things at once? Why not punish him right then? What is he waiting for? He, well, one thing that he is waiting for, so many answers today. One thing he's waiting for is 7,000 to expire. Why is he waiting for 7,000? So the bottomless pit has confinement, but it's not the punishment. The lake of fire is the punishment, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Isn't that interesting? The confinement is not punishment. Why not? We think confinement is punishment, but God seems to think that it's not. Why isn't it? 
following the transferring of those in the bottomless pit to the lake of fire is this disgrace of the moon and the shaming of the sun. Why is the moon disgraced and the sun dis- uh, I'm sorry, why is the, yeah, the moon disgraced and the sun made ashamed? Uh, you should remember, we did this a couple of months ago, maybe a week ago, maybe two weeks ago. That's Revelation 21, 23, because the sun isn't necessary for the n- new city of Jerusalem. And so, therefore, in comparison to what's going to be in the new city, the sun is ashamed. I know it's a metaphor and allegory. And the moon, of course, is completely disgraced. It has literally no light at all compared to the new city of Jerusalem. What is the source of the new city of Jerusalem light? The light of life himself is doing that, John 8, 12. Christ is the light of the new city of Jerusalem. Again, I've said it thousands of times. It's Genesis 1, 3, light of life. With the light that hit the earth and caused all of this life and all of this creation that we see on the earth. And Genesis 1, 3 is Jesus Christ. It's a person. And he's the one that will light the entire city. He's the lamb of light. The lamb will be the light of the new city of Jerusalem. And the sun will be ashamed. So try to imagine what kind of light that is. What kind of light was it when it hit the earth in Genesis 1, 3? Okay. So far, all I've done really is list the order of events. I gave you a list. I didn't put it on the board, but it's really just that, a list. Because uh, as, as we know, list makers are going to list. We can't stop it. It's a personality defect. And And... It's one thing to list the order of events because that's great value. But the real point here, yea, a real point. Why? Why is this the order and where is the wisdom? Explain why this order is this way and then what's happening in each of these components. For example, back to Satan being released, must be released. Why not the Antichrist being released too? Why did the Antichrist go into the lake of fire and Satan get a confinement sentence? You would think if anybody went into the lake of fire first, it would be Satan. It's not. The false prophet is, is in the lake of fire. They're there themselves. Answer that. That's one of the big whys. I want to know if Satan's angels are released when he's released. And if so, why so? And if not, why not? Now, the kings of the earth don't have bodies. But the angels are a little bit different. The kings of the earth were, were slaughtered in Revelation, right? What, and again, the shaming, disgracing of the sun and the moon. How is it that the fourth day of the creation week, the placing of the sun and the moon, are connected to the gathering of the host of exalted ones? Because they are. He puts the gathering of the, of the host and the kings of the earth, he puts them together with this moon and the sun being disgraced. What is he saying about the sun and the moon? Why this placing? Somehow the sun and the moon have meaning to the fallen, exalted angels. And I have many times presented the sun and the moon as indicative components of the revealing of a time period. I think that's exactly what they are. So why does this time period have, what does it have to do with the uh, imprisoning of the angels? 
I think that God installed, God installed the sun and the moon specifically for the exalted host, which are the fallen angels. I think he, he wanted it to, both him, both them and the unfallen. I think that the point of the sun and the moon is not for mankind. I made that point, I think, just recently. It's a counting mechanism. It counts down to a resolution. Essentially, uh, the sun and the moon are the visible hands on a mechanical clock, if that makes any sense. So it's counting the time that it remains to the day of the Son of Man. That's why the 7,000. And that raises the question, is the day of the Lord the same day as the day of the Son of Man? Obviously, when the day of the Son of Man has come, the sun and the moon have completed their assignment. Um, and so their value, the angels are imprisoned. The, the unfallen angels now know what, when the day of the Son of Man came. So if they endure, and there is evidence that they do, if you remember the discussion with uh, uh, Psalm 148, 3-6, it says that they are... Uh, they endure forever. Well, if they do endure, they obviously don't have the clock element to them anymore. And the light of the Lamb is so powerful in the new city, they do nothing for the new city. Now, there are some that believe that they still provide light for the earth. Well, that would mean there's darkness then. I don't believe that there's darkness on the earth. Uh, so they, if they're still enduring, then they uh, serve as a memorial. Because they, they have no needed function in the new city of Jerusalem. Okay, let's back up now and get in Isaiah 2. Piece this together. I'm watching the time. Okay, where do I want to go here? Let's just start right at the beginning. Isaiah 2.1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And let's go down to uh, verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Again, that's a worldwide event, nation against nation. That's world war. Shows up here in Isaiah. Now, let's jump ahead to verse 10. Enter into the dust and, I'm sorry, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. And the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. To repeat what I said before, Isaiah, uh, it is, Isaiah 2 is where the first time we see the day of the Lord that comes in 12 for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty upon everything lifted up and it shall be brought low. We get 217. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's the day of Isaiah 212. In verse 20. 
In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship to the moles and bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and to the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord. I hope you recognize the symbolism is quite similar to Isaiah 24, the noise, the fear of the noise and the pit and the snare. And the glory of his majesty in 21. Let me repeat this. To go into the clefts of the rock, into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord. They're fleeing from him, aren't they? You see this again in Revelation where they go to hide into the caves. And they want the caves and the rocks to come down on them so they can hide from the Lord. So that uh, relationship is obviously connected. And the glory of his majesty. When he arises to shake the earth mightily. And then this advice, sever yourself from a man whose breath is in his nostrils. For what what account is he? I think that's an Antichrist reference. See Revelation 6, 15 through 17. So, Isaiah 2, 12 again. The first mention of scripture of the day of the Lord. It's a day of terror. It's a day of fleeing from the noise of the fear. Mankind will hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord. Now that's a Genesis 2-7, isn't it? All dust go back to Genesis 2-7. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So that becomes this question, doesn't it? Who was it that exalted the host of the exalted ones? If the exalted ones, the host of the exalted ones are the fallen angels, I think that is obvious that they are. Who's exalting them? Why are they the host of the exalted ones? When the uncreated Christ shakes the earth, he says, sever yourself from such. Sever yourself from a man whose breath is in his nostrils. That's a created being. For what account is he? What happens to the Antichrist? How much difficulty does Christ have ending the reign of the Antichrist? He does it with the breath of his sword, right? Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 11. The Antichrist is instantly uh, disintegrated. It has, he has no ability whatsoever to oppose Christ, the creator of him. All he is is something that has breath in his nostrils. Whose breath does he have? So do not, you need to sever yourself from men. The exalting of things now will end on that day. And the Son of Man, Christ alone, is exalted, it says. In verse 17, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That tells you that he ends the exalting of other things, created things, uh, human and angel. Now, with that somewhat, we establish, and that, that, that I've somewhat established that, we can now start the lecture and ask the questions. Why does Christ, the infinite God, the Son of Man, insist on resurrecting the body of physical 
beings, the physical bodies of mankind, of living souls? This is a question that is very ancient. You see uh, the heresies or the blasphemies uh, that say the physical body, Gnosticism, those who attach evil to anything created. Only God is, is uh, holy, they say. So if something has physical form, it is evil by automation. Why does Christ insist on resurrecting your body, my body, all bodies? Why does he do that? Why doesn't he just take the souls and make new bodies and leave the old bodies behind? Allow them to remain disintegrated in the dust. He doesn't. He re-establishes the body with the soul. He treats them almost as equality. You wouldn't think that would be the case. But he does that. So obviously it's true. What's the answer to that question? How do you approach the answer to that question? What do you do first? Well, the first thing you do, in my opinion is you figure out what he's trying to say by doing that. What is proved then by body resurrection? Here's another answer. Obviously, it has something to do with Genesis 3 and Ezekiel 28, the abundance of your traffic, the lie of Satan. So what is he proving by body resurrection? Going to the trouble. Now, he's infinite God and he's omnipotent and he's omniscient. He knows where every every a proton, where every electron is, where every quark is. If there is such a thing as a quark, we all think there is. We'll be surprised. I'm having to study string theory. I know I, I get lots of questions on string theory, and I know just the basics of it. Uh, I want to find out more about it so that I can uh, make a decision as to whether that is, in fact, how God did it. Now, do I think that's how God did it? No, I don't. The joke in string theory, and I'm going to get lots of hate mail, is that if you can't figure out how to make your string theory thesis work, you add more dimensions. That's what they do. And that, to me, is obviously illogical. That's just throwing mud at the, at the, at the board, hoping something will stick. Uh, but uh, I will try to bring myself up to speed on string theory besides just being amateurish about it. I've ignored it because it does not seem to have any... R- the string theory people really like their string theory. And it's old. It's not, it's not new. It goes back quite some time. You would think as a banjo player, somebody that's interested in resonance and vibration. And I am interested in resonance and vibration. And I started string theory a couple of months ago, maybe, with regard to ma- magnetic resonant imaging. Resonance is very important. Is that how God is doing it? Is he vibrating strings? Or is, uh, how is he doing it? Anyway. How did I get onto that? I don't know. What is proved by body resurrection? Obviously, existence is proved by body resurrection. Yea, an answer, maybe. But how is existence so proved by resurrection? To whom is it proved? And again, we return back to Genesis 3, the lie of Satan. Satan has said from the beginning, everything is automated. Everything is under the omniscience of God. There is no free will. There is no existence, therefore. If there's no free will, there is no existence. Everything is a lie. And God is responsible for sin. Because there is no ability otherwise of man or angel to choose righteousness. So we've returned to Genesis 3. With the body resurrection, but you have to start thinking about how does Christ prove that existence is real and destroy this lie of Satan by doing exactly this. And the purpose of eternal life is also here. 
We have eternal life in the new city of Jerusalem, and that's forever life. We also have eternal or forever second death. Revelation 2, 2014, in the lake of fire. Both life and death, as God so defines them, must be eternal. Why? Because the annihilationists say that's not, that's not good. That's cruel. Eternal condemnation is cruel and unusual punishment. Eternal. Forever. But God says, this is how it has to be. Omniscience makes it so. Why is this the case? It ties into the resurrection of the body. He goes to, he takes the step of resurrecting everyone who is disembodied, all humans, restoring their body, bringing them to the white throne judgment, judging them for their rejection of his hand of salvation, and casting them by their own will and choice into the lake of fire with their body. Why does he do that? It proves something is far more complicated than you may have concerned or considered. How is it that resurrection of the body is evidence of, re, of existence? Well, I'm going to tell you, here's another answer, yay, another answer. It's displayed at June, Jude 9. You may have remembered me doing this a while back. This is the place again where I say hello to Val, Joe, and Susie. Because they have been wanting me to do this for months. And now's the time. Am I really going to answer it for them? Oh, no. I'm going to get close, though. We had somebody contact you and say, who is this Valjo person? And, and what have they written? Well, they, they're two uh, wonderful ladies. I think they're in Bakersfield. And they are, they are devoted to scripture and it is a thrill to have them listen to our little wild, uh, lectures. See, what's going on? Satan and his army in Jude 9 is against Michael and his army and they're contending, the Bible says, over the body of Moses. That is a body, isn't it? If I got a body and the body is dead, where's Moses? Where's the body? Obviously they're separated. And Satan has decided that he is going to block what Michael wants to do. And I, I made the case a while back that their armies have assembled here. I think it is only logical that that's the case. This is an extremely important situation. Most assume, uh, and most, um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> most theologians assume that Satan intended to co-opt the body of Moses in order to do something diabolical with it, usually to deceive the nation of Israel. And Michael rises up to defend Israel. That, of course, is Daniel 12.1. Michael rises up to defend Israel. Is that what he's doing here? I don't think so. Um, we have the uh, pseudo-religious writings of the anonymous Jewish uh, writers. It's called The Assumption of Moses. It's not biographical. It's The word is a pseudo or pseudepigraphal. And it, uh, if you've read The Assumption of Moses, uh, that is what they say. That, that, that is what the ancient Jewish rabbis, rabbinical scholars say, that they were... That, Satan was trying to get the body of Moses in order to use it as some kind of deception. 
and ultimately that that could be the case. I'm I'm not going to discount it. However, uh, this falls under the category of uh, riddle me that, uh, uh, riddle me this, Batman. Did Satan, let me ask it this way, did Satan conclude, did he anticipate that God was going to do something special with the body of Moses? Because God did something special with the death of Moses. So did Satan, being filled to the brim with wisdom, Ezekiel 28, did Satan know this was going to happen? Did he, was he able to predict it? And did he know why as well? Because God intended to hide the body of Moses. Hide it from who? Whom? Did Satan know why God would hide the Moses body? And if so, then that changes his confrontation from where he's trying to seize the body and steal it in order to use it as deception to something else. Was the, was the confrontation, in other words, between the exalted host of Satan, which is the fallen angels, again, I hope I proved that, and... Uh, Isaiah 24 and Isaiah 2 was the confrontation between the exalted host of Satan and the angels of Michael actually a theological conflict and had nothing to do with the theft of the body of Moses. You see, in my view, Satan must have known he could not steal the body of Moses. He's got to take it from Michael. That in itself seems to be uh, an extremely difficult proposition. So why would he? Why would he even make the attempt? Is he trying to make the attempt? What's the motive? What's the plan? And remember, Michael dared not bring against Satan a reviling accusation, but instead he said, the, "May the Lord rebuke you," or "The Lord rebuke you." That's Jude nine. So Satan obviously said something to Michael, and Michael said in in return, in response, "The Lord rebuke you." In other words, Michael did not counter, did not contest whatever it was that Satan proclaimed at this impasse between the two of them. The two sides, if you will, gathered, assembled to struggle over the body of Moses in some fashion. Did Michael know why God wanted the body of Moses? And if Michael knew why God wanted the body of Moses hid, did Satan know why? Which one's smarter? Well, the Bible says Satan. Satan cannot physically prevail against omnipotence. Duh. But some, for some reason, we have these two bodies of angels in this situation. Why are they there? Why didn't God just take the body himself and that's the end of it? He doesn't. He doesn't do it that way. Does God know this is going to happen? He's outside of time. He's omniscient. He's the creator of time. He knows all things. He does not control free will being. Somehow that all works out. Would you like me to prove it mathematically again with infinity? No. No one wants that to happen ever again. See, I do those kinds of things more not to, not to teach you anything, but to use them as a, as a cudgel, as a threat. Don't make him do math ever again. They say, well, then go with me here. Satan can't get the body. God could have just taken it. But he didn't. He, this happens instead. That means this is something that is important. It needs to happen. I have fallen angels, the exalted host of Satan, and I have unfallen angels, the army of Michael and Moses' body. So I, sub- I submit that this is a, uh, another accusatory 
It's an accusation by Satan against the character of God. Back to Genesis 3. Resurrection of the body somehow proves existence. Satan is accusatory. He's an accuser, Revelation 12.10. And Michael's response implies, at least to me, that the unfallen angels did not have a counter. I'm not surprised by that. They didn't have a counter at 28.16, the abundance of your traffic. I think they, or Michael was unable to, whatever Satan's accusation was, uh, Michael wasn't able to respond to it, but he knew that God could. So he's essentially saying, the Lord knows the answer to what you've just said. The Lord will rebuke you. I cannot. Let's talk about Moses a second. How am I doing? Moses died on Mount Nebo. Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6. His body not diminished at all. So what killed him? Trick question. Intentionally badly worded question. What made him die? His death, it says, was according to the word of God. Wow. Obviously, the word of God is a person, but the word of God is also the word of God, the Bible. So his death was both according to a person and according to the word. I can find his death before he died in the Bible. Uh, and, And this is humanistic phrasing, and it's not the way it works because we're talking about omnipresence and infinity. God himself was in attendance here. In other words, he is with Moses on the mountain when Moses dies according to his word. And Moses' body is hidden, so there would be this secrecy about it. Who, who, who is the secret being a secret from? That's why I keep asking. Did, uh, did Satan figure this out? Did Michael know? Obviously, Satan's prepared because he shows up, doesn't he? Talk about that in a second. He knew that the death of Moses was going to be how long? It's going to be 120 years. 340s. He knew that. 120 years. 120 years. 123. 120 years. Well, wait a second. Isn't that Genesis 6 3? It sure is. I got 120 years there. Do you think the 120 years of the 120 years has any kind of connectivity? Well, obviously it does. Genesis 3 and Genesis or 6 3 and Genesis 7 4. It's 120 years and seven days. Was Moses 120 years and seven days old? Did Satan figure that out? Asking, I'm asking that for a complete stranger. I have no friends. Anyway, how did Satan know? Why did God do this in secret? Where was the body of Moses taken? And again, is it, it obviously isn't a secret from Satan because he shows up. It's not a secret from Michael. He shows up. So who's it a secret from? Who's left? Animals? Why? Well, yeah, but obviously mankind. It's a secret from mankind. Why is it a secret from mankind? How does this testify of the body of Christ? Because Christ has a body too. Moses has a body. Christ has a body. They have to relate because of Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses says, look for someone who, who patterns himself on my life that he established. The prophet 
I am a type of the prophet. Moses is the most like Christ in all of Scripture. And there's countless, not countless, but many, many uh, uh, books and papers written about all of the typology of Moses. Surely the days of Moses will be a type for the days of the Son of Man. So the days of Moses will be a type. It'll be very similar to the days of the Son of Man. That's why I ask, how long is the days of the Son of Man? I just add Moses in there. Instead of just 6-3 of Genesis, I this time brought you Moses. And don't call me Shirley. Obviously, Matthew 17 provides explanation. After six days, on the seventh day... Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, the invisible God made visible, the creator of all things, all things consist in him. Uh, <coughs> Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He takes Simeon Peter, he takes James and he takes John up on a high mountain. And Christ there reveals that he is the ancient of days. Uh, Daniel 7. And who is there? Moses and Elijah. And they recognize them. I'm thinking that Moses has to help them. Hi, I'm Moses. Elijah go, I'm Elijah, in case you were wondering. Moses and God are now on a mountain again. Because Christ takes them up to a high mountain. That's what it says. That's probably coincidental. It's probably the second time. And, and Christ doesn't remember that he was on the mountain in Deuteronomy. Never mind. And Peter, of course, fails again with his three tabernacles and temples proposal. I want to, I, he wants to equalize Moses, Elijah, and Christ, which is uh, not good for Peter. And that tells you that Peter is incredible because he knows what he did. And then he became this amazing orator, preacher, mind of God in Acts. How did this happen? But anyway, at Matthew 17, the pillar of cloud descends, just like it was during the, and just like it is, the, the, the pillar of cloud descends. Of course it would. We're seeing the Elohim, Genesis 1.26, 3.22. And just like in the baptism, Matthew 3.17, we, this, because Christ in his baptism, went to the place of the axe head, where you know all of that, where the throne branch went into the Jordan River from Adam descending into the Dead Sea. This voice comes out here at the Transfiguration, out of the pillar of cloud. This is my beloved son. Same, the language is the same as the, as the immersion in the place of the axe head in the Jordan River. And Christ, oh, well, first the disciples fall on their faces and they have great terror. So they're in the they're in the dust again, Genesis 2-7. And then Christ says to his disciples, tell no one. Tell no one until the Son of Man is resurrected. Why didn't he say the Son of God? He said the Son of Man. Because he's putting all of this together for us. You see, uh, Satan saw the death of Moses. He had to see it. Who could you miss it? He sees the transfiguration. He's around. He's in, he's in this area. He's watching Christ. Why wouldn't he watch Christ? He's expecting something that didn't happen the way he expected it, but that's probably the only thing he did not figure out before it happened. 
But she saw the death of Moses and he blocked Michael's task, Michael's assignment. Michael was told to secure and hide the body of Moses. Moses is at Matthew 17 and he's at Revelation 11. Same with Elijah. So Moses at Revelation 11. And again, don't write me. It's obvious that Moses is at Revelation 11. Um, And he's got a body. So how did that work out? What's the anatomy of that? Michael obviously was able to complete his assignment. So why did Satan... What was the trap of Satan? What was the reason for this accumulation of forces over the body of Moses? What was the argument? I'll put it this way. Satan had a trap here. And I'll give you a couple of ideas of how it works. If God keeps the body, what happens? What What does Satan say? If God allows Satan to seize the body of Moses, what does Satan say about that? How does the resurrection of the body of Moses prove existence? How does it defeat Genesis 3? This is all about God refuting the lie of Satan again. Finally, yea, finally, finally. I want you to take note of Peter's failures. I've got to get this in because when we come back on the 12th of July, here's where I'm going to be. I want you to note that Peter fails and Mary Magdalene fails and Thomas. I want you to... Put those three together. Peter, Mary Magdalene, or actually put them in order. Mary Magdalene, Thomas, and Peter. I want you also to put together Noah, Lot, and Lot's wife. You got six pieces. Six. This would be ten, in case you needed to know. Six. Six pieces. I want you to look at all six of them. Two sets of three. Peter fails spectacularly at Matthew 16, 21 through 23 before the transfiguration, before he fails again with his three temple idea. But that's where Christ says to him, get behind me, Satan, right? At Matthew 16, 25, Christ says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So now you look at Luke 17, 33, Luke 17, 32. That's remembers Lot's wife. He uses the same language there, doesn't he? So that has some connectivity to Matthew 16.25. Lot's wife connects to Matthew 16.25. Matthew 17, because Christ does it. You think he doesn't know? He obviously knows. You know, oh, he probably forgot he said that at Matthew 16.25. Matthew 17.4 is another one of Peter's failures. And, of course, there's, the, there's three denials of Peter, there's three, Peter's three questions, John 21, 15 through 17. Mary Magdalene, he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Does, is there another woman he says that to? Oh, yes, there is. Sister of Lazarus, weeping Mary, the other Mary, John 11, 23, or 33. Mary Magdalene thought Christ was a gardener, a teacher. In John 20, 25, Thomas says he's not going to believe anything. Unless he gets a personal audience, John eleven sixteen. Also, Thomas says, let's, let's just go and die. Mary's weeping because her brother died and there was no hope. Mary Magdalene's dying because, or, or weeping because Christ is dead and there's no hope. Peter, that can't answer three simple questions. I mean, it's a mess. And yet out of that came incredible truths and amazing people. 
I want you to contrast all of that with Nicodemus and Joseph, John 19, 38 through 42. They did not weep. They knew what to do. They had a job. It was to take care of the body of Christ. That makes them like who? Yeah, that makes them like Michael. They had a job. They didn't embalm him, by the way. There is no embalming. They covered his body. They hid it. So I have this relationship between the body of Moses and the body of Christ. We should be able to figure it out. What did Nicodemus and Joseph, uh, what, what were they doing this for? And why were they doing it? How did they know to do it? That's who we need to be. Nicodemus and Joseph. That's where we'll start. Hopefully the whole thing worked out. If not, I'll do the exact same lecture three more times and then I get back.